Ukraine is a beautiful and glorious country. We have beautiful traditions, food, mountains, a very rich history. It's our country. It's our territory. It's our culture. It's our history. We are much stronger than whatever else the Russian soldiers are fighting for. What do you do in the face of watching terrible atrocities occur in your home country when you are thousands of miles away? For Olga Stigny, she turned to the one thing that has given her strength and purpose throughout her life. Any time when I felt scared, lonely or upset, all I would do, I would go out and run. Last year, to mark 31 years of Ukrainian independence and highlight the ongoing war, Olga challenged herself to run 31 kilometers every day, 31 days in a row. That's a distance of 961 kilometers in one month. My mind was so focused and strong at that time that I had no any other choice other than to do that run. For me, it was non-negotiable. You're just going to get it done. Even if you have to crawl, you will do it. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last year, Olga has spent so much of her time and energy championing the voices and stories of the Ukrainian people. And our conversation is a reminder that behind every headline is a human story. At 5am in the morning, I receive a call from my cousin saying they are bombing Kiev. And that was it. Like, you know, everything froze inside me. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. The first thing was like, you need to get out of the country. In this episode, we discuss Olga's journey into fitness from being a partying, smoking fashion designer to now being an incredibly athletic personal trainer. We also discuss how the war has personally affected Olga and she shares her story of bringing her family over to the UK. This is a conversation about resilience, about taking action to create positive change and the importance of having the support of people and communities around you. By yourself, you are no one and you are nothing. It's all about people you are surrounded with your family, your friends, people who support you, people who you go to when you feel low, depressed, tired, exhausted. If you didn't have all of those people around you, then your journey would end there and then. That's all coming up on episode nine of Great British Adventures. I am in a lot of pain, <laughs> Olga, and it is all your fault. Well, that's a statement that I am quite used to now. People do tell me that quite often. You're the giver of pain then? I am a giver of strengths that you achieve through pain that you are going through when you come to my classes. Interesting way to phrase that. So I was at your strength and conditioning class uh, Wednesday, which is two days ago, which you do every Wednesday evening at St. Paul's. Correct. Public session open to all, get tickets from your socials. Uh, the first time I had did, did, did your class, it's also one of the first times I've ever done any gym class. I'm not a gym goer. Joke. I don't really do many fitness classes, certainly group ones. I do the occasional YouTube video at home to my okay. own comfort. Uh, it's a completely different environment when it's when you're surrounded by people, but also with a leader like yourself. Uh, I was very impressed with it. I definitely did uh, surprise myself with what I could achieve, but I do feel sore. Well, that's very normal state um, that you bo your body is going through doing strength and conditioning class for runners that you have done on Wednesday. 
especially if you have not done anything like that before, you will feel sore. But every single class is designed with a thought of that people who come to them are runners and they don't do much strength and conditioning training outside of running. And the exercises that are chosen for the class are specifically focused on building you stronger as a runner from inside out, working on stability of your joints, stability of your um, full body in order to sustain your running form and running efficiency so you can run longer for longer. But one reason why I started the classes is because a lot of runners will, will come to me and say, I'm injured because of this, that and that. And I was trying to find the way where I can educate people uh, and bring them something that will help them to overcome all those injuries. Um, being sore, it's normal because your body is adjusting to a new way of training as well as building new way of um adapting to running becoming stronger runner strength is good for you not because it just builds a stable joints but it's also builds stronger bones that can sustain more pressure pounding the pavements around london which we all essentially do minimum of anywhere between 20 to 100 kilometers per week and with jobs that we have nowadays sitting at the desks all day for eight to ten hours and then either before or after you asking your body to go out for a 10, 15 or 20 kilometer run after sitting all day or sleeping all night, it's very uh, risky um, not to focus on strength uh, training and then asking your body to do such thing as run that much without preparing your body for it. I was going to ask you why it's so important. You clearly just <laughs> answered that for me now. It's something which I think a lot of people neglect, um, especially if they are like the two of us are runners, uh, regularly running. I definitely uh, fall into that category where strength and conditioning is a chore for me. I do find it very useful going to something like Midnight Runners, which you are one of the captains are in, in London, because I find that when I attend, I get to do my strength and conditioning there without it feeling like a chore. It's good fun. And when the session is really good, I feel the burn and I am I feel like that's it. I, that's me done for the week. Would that be a suitable amount of strength and conditioning? Oh, well, Midnight Runners are incredible running community, as we both know, and many others who hopefully listening to this episode. But Midnight Runners are not focused on building strengths and conditioning for runners they focused on bringing fun into fitness and running and moving yes it is great to combine running and exercises but whether it's enough or not i would say no it's not enough it is fun and it is beneficial but depending how serious you want to get about your running if you just want to run for fun and some people just do that. It's perfect. It's better than not doing any strengths or conditioning at all. But if you want to achieve certain goals, chase PBs or run uh, for longer, you need to pay more attention to strengths and conditioning. I can definitely vouch for that. I think from, from being very comfortable in a Midnight Runners boot camp scenario, I kind of expected something similar. And I was surprised that uh, I got so much more from from your one hour session 
It was jam-packed full. It was definitely great value for money in terms of the exercises we did. Very well arranged. Nice to have some well-deserved uh, breaks, but then back into doing reps. Um, there was three, three reps of different exercises, and then there was another three reps of another different exercises. Even the warm-up was quite an exercise. <laughs> Took me by surprise. <laughs> I'm used. I think I get quite used to being in these group scenarios, these these communities, and you do a, a warm up and you're just having a chat with your mates, basically. And sometimes you're not really doing it properly. But when you're in a much smaller group in a class like yourselves, you're definitely focused on actually turning up and putting in the work. Correct. Well, I broke the session into two blocks, which, as you know now, first block strengths and then conditioning. I wanted to ask you, actually, why was the strength first and conditioning after? Was there a reason for that? Yes. Do you ever do it the other way around? No. And the reason for that being is because we use the warm-up as a running drills and warming up all the joints. With the strengths, you're activating all the muscles. And then with strengths, this is where speed and power comes in. So your muscles are ready, activated, and this is when you can push. And you told me, I think, or told one of the people in the group afterwards, that you also recommended after a, a heavy strength exercise is running afterwards. I did say that you should do your hard day and heart strength day on your heart running day. Right. But always do the run first. And then okay. on tired legs, do strengths. Because if you do your hard day of running and then the next day you do your heart strength day, then you wouldn't really have a sufficient recovery in between sessions if you have another heart session the day after. So... It's not for beginners, it's for more serious runners. If you are training for a marathon-specific goal, half-marathon-specific goal, or even 10-kilometer-specific goal where you have sub-40 minutes for 10K or when you have, or even faster, if you have a decent pace, which for me is sub-three hours marathon, that is my goal for Amsterdam Marathon in October, and i never done that before, and it scares shit out of me but this is when you have to uh, do those hard days very hard and then have recovery days for you to fully recover okay i've been trying recently and and not every day but just doing just 10 press-ups because i have a really bad upper body strength i just don't have any reason for it i neglect it and whenever we do a set of the boot camp at Midnight Runners, I'm just all over the place with like press up. So it's just like, why don't I just, you know, before I shower, before bed or just before bed, just do my 10. And I don't really feel like I get stronger or any easier, but it's having something in the routine. I tell you what that is. It's similarly to making a bed in the morning. You just feel good about achieving something. It's already one box tick off of your to-do list. And doing that makes you feel good about yourself. And then you approach the next thing that, you know, on your list of things to do. And those little things, it's very important to make them achievable, like 10 press-ups a day. I do them too, funny enough. This month I'm doing 12 press-ups every day just because why not? But it's, it's just a great way of getting disciplined and feeling good about doing and achieving something every day. Yeah, the discipline is important, right? Because it's so easy to slip out of the routine. If you like you say, force it for your routine. Sean Conway talked about non-negotiables and having that relationship in your life. 
saying, comparing it to brushing our teeth is like, well, we, we do that. We know we have to do that every day. So why can't you introduce other things into your life which are non-negotiables and make them non-negotiables? Yeah. When we are younger in our 20s, we can get away with many things. When we are in our 30s, we can also get away with many things. But then we, when we enter 40s and 50s, this is when we will start to notice the effect of neglecting things like strength training and stretching and foam rolling because things that you build in your early life, you will carry over in your later life and your body will thank you for it. I definitely have read a lot of research or news reports that seems to um, highlight the importance of strength and weight training for those in the later years of their life. Uh, citing the fact that they have higher uh, deterioration of muscle. So they need to work that muscle harder to slow down the deterioration or, or maintain that muscle mass. This is playing into what you're talking about here. About 100%. Every 10 years of our life, we lose a certain percentage of muscle mass. And when we lose muscle mass, what happens? We need to work harder in our body to work harder in order to support our daily movements things like carrying shopping from the shop things like picking your kids up things like doing any movement um you know and especially for us runners it's extremely important to have strong bodies and when we have the higher level of all the beautiful hormones to specific individual is different male female right so testosterone in our early years it's so much easier to build muscle when you are in your 20s and 30s rather than when you start in your 40s or 50s or 60s and the more muscle mass you build it applies to both female and male in your 20s 30s the more you will carry over in your 40s 50s 60s and 70s and that's a very important thing to really understand especially for female because we tend to think that as soon as we lift a weight in the gym, we're going to be bulky like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's not true. You have to work so hard to get any definition in your body and your muscle and eat well in order to achieve that goal. Yes, some bodies are genetically unique and for them it's much easier to build muscle mass, but it's one in few thousand um, but the rest, we need that. But it's not only about muscle mass. As I said before, it's about bone density, which takes a huge part um, in our later life. You are a personal trainer. I am indeed, you, yes. You operate in London. What is it like being a personal trainer? I noticed from attending your class that you put a lot of work and effort in, um, but also you have to show up physically with the energy. And that is part of everything you do throughout the day in the work that you do. What is it like having to be the leader, the face, the energy on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis? I love what I do and I'm very proud to say that. This journey started like I was reborn almost um, because I was planning completely different career paths for myself and uh, I would never thought that I would be a personal trainer. You were trained to be a lawyer at one point. I was hoping that's something that I was hoping to do after I finished school in Ukraine. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. And now I think it was a faith because, um, because I didn't go to 
the law university that I wanted to go to. Unfortunately, my mom couldn't afford. And um, that was heartbreaking for me at that point. I bet, yeah. Um, just because also I managed to pass all the exams um, and I was preparing for them very hard. Um, and then the government funding uh, wasn't sufficient uh, to pay for the studying. My mom raised me and my sister by herself, so she couldn't afford my education, especially my sister was already studying. This was to continue education in Ukraine? That was in Ukraine. And then because I couldn't pursue my dreams in Ukraine, I came to England. I was invited by my aunt, uh, who lives in Ukraine, uh, UK, um, to come and visit for a year, to have a gap, um, to experience uh, a new country, to learn English, to experience new culture. And um, I had nothing to lose. Tell me about your, your journey into fitness you've been talking about coming sure. over here. So. Because it's very interesting to see. <laughs> people can see you and, and the fact that you are targeting a sub three hour marathon in Amsterdam is an incredible time but someone could see you and see how how fit and strong you are but that's never it's usually as a result of many years of hard graft and I think some people don't quite understand that there was a point in your life when you weren't as fit and strong as you have Correct. Been. So I'm always curious into what that journey has been because we all start from yeah. somewhere. Yes. A lot of people look at me now and they just think what you just described. But not many people know, obviously, the story of my life. Every single life has a story. Um, and it took me um, a lot of courage to be able to share it. Um, no, I'm not always been that fit uh, or always been thinking about health and wellness and how to help others to achieve similar things. As I mentioned, my mom raised me and my sister by herself. My father passed away when my mom was still pregnant with me, so I never met him. So we have been through a lot of challenging moments during our um, childhood. Um, we grew up with my grandparents in a little village close to Lviv. And then when we went to school uh, at age of seven, we moved to uh, Lviv where my mom lived and where we went to school. I can't remember my mom much around when we were little because she was working all the time, um, obviously supporting us with everything we needed at that time and uh, I do remember moments uh, from my childhood any time when I felt scared lonely or upset all I would do I would go out and run it was really interesting I would go out and run and um, yeah I would imagine just running around the fields feeling like a you know um, wind in my face and I used to have this imaginary game that I'm playing with my dad when I'm running and he running after me so and then after we started school um, things got a bit difficult because um, you know we didn't have all the like you know brand new clothes and shoes and I used to wear a lot of my sister's things and yeah I was Bullied at school for it. Because you're an older sister, is it? Yes. So you had the we past, have 18 months between us. Yeah. Yes. 
But then I decided that I had enough of that and obviously started to stood up for myself. And uh, very early in my life, I understood that I would have to do that uh, for the rest of my life, standing up for myself no matter what. And I think it taught me a very good lesson, uh, being very little, never be ashamed of who you are or where you come from. Um, because those things that you go through will grow in the person that you're meant to be. Um, and I think that exactly what had happened to me. Um, and then when you say you had to stand up for yourself, what did that involve? What was well, happening at the time? At the time at school, it was usually things like when I was wearing something of my sister, which was still too big for me. Uh, and my classmates would joke about it or um, uh, when I didn't have my lunchbox with me and I would have to pretend that I'm not hungry and you know it's it was things like that and after a few years of that I was like no I had enough and I would get into fights because I would like no you're not allowed to say this to me um and so when, your, your kind of coping mechanism was aggression? Yes, yes. But that um, wasn't violent aggression. I wouldn't be very violent uh, in terms of I wouldn't want to hurt anybody, but I would want to protect myself from being hurt because those things would hurt me being small. They did not matter to me in younger age, but then, you know, when you're going into teenage years, you just want to establish yourself as a strong individual. And that's what happened to me being able to kind of face to face with people who were not kind to me, um, speak up my mind. Um, you know, not everyone is fortunate enough to, to have everything, but it doesn't mean that we are less valued or you know, we are just equal. It's a cruel place to be, high school. Uh, it is, it I, is, correct. But then I found myself in, running always would save me from many things. And luckily we lived next to this beautiful woodland uh, where we used to do a lot of running. So that was my kind of uh, You were a trail runner before, you, before it was trendy. <laughs> Yes, I am. I am. So before you realize the uh, the effects of what a trail could do, you were living it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. You're talking here about your life growing up in Ukraine, and I think yeah. let's come back to your fitness journey um, because you grew up in Lviv. You, you yeah. mentioned what do you remember about life growing up in Ukraine? So I'm coming from a point of view where uh, my Cultural um, knowledge of Ukraine is very sparse. And um, Ukraine has never been a, an, a big figure in, in European knowledge for, from, from my life, through, in, through schooling. It's always been one of those far European countries. And it's only until very recently, which we'll come on to, about why I've come to understand so much about Ukraine. First of all, I was also um, doing some research today and didn't realize that discounting Russia, it is the biggest country landmass in Europe, Correct. which now I, I know and can spot Ukraine on a map. Ask me that 
two years ago, probably wouldn't have known. It would have surprised me. Put that in a pub quiz, I wouldn't have known. Yes, it is a case, unfortunately, for the time being. Uh, well, fortunately, now people do know. And um, after war has started, uh, we all said that now no one would say the statement that they used to say before when they asked me where I'm from. And I said Ukraine and they straight away said Russia. And I would get very defensive. It's like, no, it's not Russia, it's Ukraine. But that's what people used to say. Because as you said, no one would know about Ukraine much at all. It's a beautiful and glorious country. We have incredible landmarks. We have beautiful mountains. We have incredible infrastructure. Um, beautiful, growing, smart, young population. Um, in late years, um, the tech industry in Ukraine was booming um, until Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, Ukraine is a beautiful country that just starting to bloom um, fully. Um, and that's something that Russia never liked and hence why they always tried to stop that and control Ukraine as much as they could. Since we became independent country in 1991, they tried many times to stop us from becoming part of EU, then becoming part of NATO. Um, and they didn't succeed uh, with taking control over Ukraine. And that's why they decided to invade Ukraine. We'll come to that um, briefly. Um, but if you go back to your past growing up in Ukraine, Tell me some of your fond memories you have of your country, of what of you course, experienced when you were course. younger. Well, um, Ukraine has the biggest value. It has its people and its land because Ukrainian land is very rich and it's a food basket for the whole Europe. That's what we are called because Ukraine grows a lot of um, bread in Ukraine that is delivered to many European countries as well as a lot of um, African countries. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the war, a lot of those people will be without uh, bread. Because um, of the grain that you grow. Yes, yes. And um, because Russia has destroyed uh, so many lands where we would grow a lot of grains. Um, and that makes me and a lot of people very upset because the effect is going to be huge. We farm a lot of lands and uh, we have beautiful traditions um, like Ukrainian embroideries, Ukrainian traditional dancing, food, mountains. Um, we have beautiful churches, uh, great architecture, um, a very rich history. To experience Ukraine, um, you have to go there, but I wouldn't advise you to go there now, of course, um, and immerse yourself into like a full experience of it. Because to talk about it, it's one thing, but to feel it yourself, it's very different. People are very kind and welcoming and they love to make you feel at home. Um, the biggest uh, Ukrainian um way to feel you welcome is food so every time you would come to visit anybody they would always spread the table with a lot of food and um talk me through some drinks some food oh 
don't I, I absolutely don't know anything about any national food okay. of Ukraine. So okay. enlighten me. Okay. We have incredible beetroot soup known okay. as borscht that uh, is very traditional in Ukraine. And every region of Ukraine makes it its own version. And uh, second traditional um, dish of Ukraine would be uh, dumplings. We call them vareniki. We would usually make them for a um, Sunday um, feast. My granny used to make them while we all go to church on Sunday morning. And when we come back, she would have like a big basket of uh, vareniki waiting for us to have breakfast. And then we have a dish called dirune, and it's essentially potato cakes. Uh, and another traditional dish, I would say. So, would... Go, so before we go into that, let's, let's go back to the potato cake. Yeah. Is, is, is this looking like a traditional cake? No, it's not. It's more like a hash brown. Is that okay. what you say? Oh, we have I, in oh okay. So England. Not a sweet thing. No, no, no. Right. Okay. Sorry. No. Yep. Yep. Just no. clarifying that. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can tell how that's the del- a delicious thing. Yeah. It is. It is. It is. Really how is it? How is it cooked? It's fried. Fried. Yeah. It's going to be delicious. <laughs> <It's> fried. Right. <laughs> For sure. Go on. Sorry. I interrupted you there. Yes. You... And the last one to mention probably would be uh, holopsy, which is um, cabbage wraps. So you would have like a cabbage leaf and you would do a filling to your liking. Usually okay. it's a rice with some beef or pork means and some vegetables mixed together with spices wrapped in a cabbage leaf and cooked in tomato sauce. Nice. Which that sounds delicious. delicious. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned you moved to the Ukraine when you were 18. Or yes. You came over for a year. Yeah. Did you go back? What was your What's your experience with... Because you now live in the UK. I do, yes. And you've been here for many years. So tell me about your experience of coming here. Okay. So when I moved to London, when I was 18, it was not my first choice to do that. It was because I couldn't do what I wanted to. And that was the choice that I had. It was exciting, but at the same time, very scary. I had um, a good life back in Ukraine. I had a group of friends. I was a, you know, teenager with a lot of crazy thoughts that um, were very hard to piece together um, and excited about life and what I can achieve in life. It was very hard to leave my current life behind me and go away from it. Um, I had a boyfriend at that time, uh, my first serious boyfriend. You would want to call it <laughs> In Ukraine, things happen very quickly, especially when it comes to family and marriages. It's normal to get married in your early, mid-twenties, have kids by that age Mm -hmm. and live your life happily after. But it never really appealed to me that I'm going to be the one who's going to do that. Essentially, my mom also was quite late to the party. She had us when she was in her late 20s, early 30s, and she would always say to us, girls, make sure you live your life to your fullest before you decide to have a family yourself because it's a huge commitment. And I think with that in mind, I wanted to have all the experiences um, that I could before I get to that point. Nevertheless, as I said, I had a first serious boyfriend to what I thought back then and it was very hard to decide to come here but then I wanted to experience new things so I did not long after my very serious boyfriend cheated on me very quickly so 
<laughs> that was a heartbreak yeah. straight away. Um, but um, you know, it's it's fine. Um, that must have been tough for you at the time, being at such a young age to kind of it was. process so much going. Yeah, it was indeed, yeah. and especially being in a new country, uh, having no friends. My English back then was very limited. And um, people who I would hang out with or spend time with were my aunt and a few Ukrainian friends. So that was... Very, it's very hard to integrate into any country when you don't have confidence in the language. Correct. It was really hard. Um, but then I very quickly realized that I had to push myself out of my comfort zone and just go out there and learn the language talk to people, try to communicate uh, with the English that I had. And I did. Uh, it took me a few years until uh, I got to a very good conversational level uh, where I could read and write. And then it just clicked. Were there any hard moments in the initial first years when you were integrating yourself into this new country, this new culture, this new world? Yes, because... London is offering so many different opportunities. And I was like a little headless chicken trying to run everywhere, doing everything. And I didn't know like what I want to be, what I want to become and what I want to do. So I just tried a lot of different things in terms of um, what I would want to become in the future. And one of those things where I studied interior design in Chelsea Art School, for a bit and then I transitioned to a fashion design in St. Martins um, which was very exciting and I enjoyed love it but then I um, got to the point where I understood how um, hard it is to succeed in such competitive um, field um, as well as I was good but I wasn't I didn't feel that I was gifted with the you know, some people just great at designing and putting colors together and etc. And I was good, but it would take me a good, a long time in order to put a good design uh, together or to create something that I would really appreciate myself so I can put out to others. So then I had this um, moment in my life where I was doing something that I'm enjoying but I wasn't fulfilling my desires to do something that I enjoy so much and good at. Um, and I was in this state of mind where I was like, am I doing the right thing? Um, is it something that something else that I can do? And I was cycling to commute at that time. And one evening I was cycling back and I had a bike accident and it was almost 10 years ago um, which put me out of game for a while but also I think I was kind of reborn in that accident again. What do you mean by that? So within a second um, the life has changed. I The accident was that um, I took off after the red traffic light changed to green and then start to pick up the pace um, and then the van at front of me, he just stopped sharply in front of me and I didn't press the brakes because I didn't see him. Mm -hmm. And I cycled into the back of the van and I hit it with my helmet in my face. 
And then in one second, like the whole life was in front of me. And I was like, when you realize that everything can stop, just then you tr- you start to see things differently. You start to appreciate things more. You start to be more, you start to have more value in, in life itself. Because I think there are a lot of things that I definitely did take for granted what were they (laughs) i think a lot of a lot of things like things that i should have been grateful for that i had in life you know the opportunity to come to this country you know not only focus on like negativity that i wasn't being able to pursue my law dreams but other than went here i Not many people get this opportunity and I should have been grateful for that. I should have been grateful for, you know, my aunt being here for me every time I needed, even though I didn't have any friends, but she was always there for me. I should have been more grateful for the time she spent with me. I should have been more grateful for a lot of resources that I got from her and other people who helped me to succeed in this country. Because I don't know people who are self-made. I don't believe in self-made people because you can't, really be self-made because by yourself you are no one and you are nothing it's all about people you are surrounded with your family your friends people who support you people who you go to when you feel low depressed tired exhausted people who you share happy moments with you know if you didn't have all of those people around you then like your journey would end there and then um, well, that's that's what I believe too. So I should have been more grateful for for all of those people and moments that were there for me. You use that word. I lost count of the amount of times the word grateful. Yeah, it's often talked about in how to change a negative mindset is to, for instance, have a daily practice of writing down what you are grateful for. Correct. It's something which I've learned uh, <laughs> over the years and I'm still learning and I don't practice it but uh, I have found myself in moments when I can feel wound up perhaps that's because I have lots of negative thoughts in my head but sometimes I can maybe notice that and then try to change my mindset to think of something positive and it's incredible what that does to your entire body once you have that moment of feeling good about something it almost is just like it just like cascades down from your head this like feeling of pleasure because you and you never realized how worked up you were at the time and it sounded like it took an accident for you to have this moment correct where it completely shook you up 100 percent, and flipped your mindset yes it did. It did. And now I, you know, it was very traumatic experience, but I do feel grateful for it because it transformed me into a person I am today. And that transformation was very hard, but at the same time, extraordinary to me because I realized who I am as a person and what I want to do in this life. I realize uh, how much love I have from people around me and I realize how 
how many people are there who are looking out for me, um, which I was blind to before, you know, um, and and that's a beautiful thing to realize. So what did you change in your life going forward from that moment? Well, that's that's where my kind of fitness journey was started almost. <laughs> um from being did you had you had this lag right this this part of your life where you neglected fitness yes oh yes and well fashion and design is incredible but it also requires a lot of partying outing right. meeting people connecting with people and that was the time when i was very disconnected with fitness i used to smoke i used to go out i used to drink and i remember one day I was trying to catch a bus to go to um, my uh, lectures and the bus was there and it was about maybe 200 meters, maybe less. Um, and I tried to run. I did catch the bus, but I thought I would die. I was so breathless and I was so unfit at that time that so I stood there for five minutes and I was like, oh my God, you're only 25. What are you doing to yourself? Like, it's not okay. So then <laughs> there was a moment where I decided to stop smoking once again and um, start running. It was a very funny story. At that time, I used to live in Wimbledon and um, we had this beautiful Wimbledon common right next door. Um, and I remember going first time uh, for a run. And it's I had, a beautiful place. Yeah, It is a beautiful place. And I had no idea what I was doing. I started running. I was running for one minute and then I had to stop because like my lungs were like, my, not coping well and my heart was jumping out. And I was like, oh my God, like how am I going to do this? And I literally, after one minute, I had to stop and I had to walk and I had to push again. And after 30 seconds, I had to stop. So I lasted maybe for five, 10 minutes max. And then I went back and I was like, that's not okay. What is happening? And I had relapsed a few times. I was starting stopping smoking, starting stopping smoking. And then I started to only smoke when I would go out and have a drink. But then I started to try and run a little more. And like every time I went out, it would be like, okay, now I managed to do like 90 seconds without stopping. And then it slowly would build up to two minutes. And then I would have like a section from one tree to the other um and it was hilarious now when i think about it you know it was very hard but you have to push through that uncomfort zone and of course it's going to be uncomfortable and of course it's going to be painful and of course your body's going to ache but what do you expect like you know you're doing something that you have not done and you have to get through those aches and pains in order to be able to move to a next level and it's very important to understand that and because a lot of people now say to me like oh i i'm not designed to run I can't run because it's too painful, it's too hard. Yes, it is. And I've been in those shoes too. But now it's a completely different story because you push through it, you build on it and you move forward. And that's how it goes. Yeah, I, I think running is one of the hardest things that anyone can start and continuing to run is one of the hardest things to do as well. And so many people fall at that first hurdle because they do go out and it is hard. Yeah. And they struggle. And it's it's also just not comfortable. But to reach a comfortable stage of your running takes a lot of time, takes a lot of commitment 
and it takes a lot of consistency. And you now are a very comfortable runner, but it's very interesting to hear the story where you went through all that pain. <laughs> I we did. all have to go through that. I did suffer a lot until I got to the stage where I actually started liking. And I think one of the funny stories was also when I um, started running a bit more and living in Wimbledon um, gave me opportunity to experience all this amazing people who would go to Wimbledon tennis. And one day I went running during Wimbledon tennis and Andy Murray was running there. And I was like, oh my God. He definitely didn't recognize who I am, but I definitely know who you, who you are. Great spot of all the places as well. He was running to the, the, the he, tournament? He was doing a jog around Wimbledon Common. I was like, I was trying to put like a s- strong athlete um, face on and I literally sprinted past him. And as soon as I turned the corner, I had to stop to catch my breath. I bet he did the same. I bet he did the same. I bet he saw you. as like, I need to make sure I look good. Yeah. I'm passing this lady. <laughs> we all do, we all have moments like that yeah. when we we're struggling, but then suddenly you see a member of public walking yeah. past you, and like, oh, hang on, I need to make sure yeah. I look like I'm. Yeah, yeah, I'm having for sure. Fun. One also very strong point about running and starting running, as you said, it's mm. super hard. I remember joining my very first running club. Um, at that point, I used to live then in East London, and I always thought, and same thing, a lot of other people think that you have to be at certain level to join running club or running community. I thought I need to run at certain pace, certain distance, be very good runner. No, you don't need that to join the running club or running community. You just need to turn up and then get inspired and pumped by people around you. It's so much easier and it's so much fun uh, to go and run with other people. And it was just blessing in the sky when I went um, and joined east end road runners um for about a year and a half yeah how long have you lived in the uk now it's already 17 years i yeah 17 years this august it's nearly the whole life that you (laughs) lived before in ukraine i know so we have to talk about what's been going on in ukraine in the last uh year or so uh take me back to february last year when you saw the the mounting of army in the borders of Ukraine. What was going through your mind then? Oh, so February um, last year was, to say heartbreaking, it would be to say almost nothing to explain how I felt and many others at that that point. Um, So I went back to Ukraine just before war has started to see my family. And there were a lot of talks on um, on the news and a lot of social media that Russia might might invade Ukraine, and um, we all know um, how crazy Putin is, and we don't know what we can expect. But we all had this hope in our heart that this would never happen. I remember arriving at the beginning of February and the energy in the country was really disturbing. Everyone was kind of living a normal life, but at the same time, everyone was very concerned uh, about what's going to happen. And um, I had my flight book back on the 14th of February and um, I started to get messages from 
my friends and people in London saying, you should head back now. Um, things are going to happen. Uh, you should leave the country. Um, but then I was like, how I can leave the country? I have my family here. Like they all leave here. Like what's going to happen to them? And then they started to um, talk about um, no flying zone. Um, so I was like, oh my God, I'm, will I make my fly? What's going to happen? And then um, that day, the day I was supposed to fly out, the day before that, my cousin brought his family from um, Kiev to Lviv um, just because we did not know what's going to happen. And Lviv is the closest city to the border with Poland. And he um, had at that time um, a newborn son. He was only six months old. Um, and it, it really, really, really scared me. And um remembering going away and leaving them all behind was was very hard that must be very difficult, very yeah. shocking um thing it was just really um difficult to kind of digest but still it was 10 days before the war started and um we still had so much hope that it's never going to start and then it was thursday morning at 5 a.m in the morning i received a call from my cousin um saying it had begun they are bombing Kiev. And that was it. That day was like, you know, everything froze inside me. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. And the first thing was like, you need to get out of the country. You need to get your child, your wife. You need like, we need to get them out. My sister who has two kids also lived in Ukraine until last year. So for me, the first thought was I need to get them out somehow. I need to get them out. And obviously a lot of families thought the same. It was February. Ukrainian winters are very different to UK winters. We have a lot of snow and it's very cold. Um, and uh, a lot of people just jumped into the cars, took everything what they could and drove towards Poland to cross the borders. So they did. Um, but then after staying in the traffic jam for over 36 hours with little kids uh, in, in the cold winter, you have to keep the engine going because of, to keep the car warm. And kids started to cough because of all the fuel um, they had to turn around um, because they couldn't they couldn't stay in the car for much longer with small kids. There were three of them, my cousin's little newborn son and my sister's kids who were at that time um, six and four. So they had to turn back and then, then they went to my grandparents' village where they were hiding um, for a bit because they had like an um, underground space where they could bring some supplies into and in case of bombing they just can hide in there whether in the city we lived in a block of flats and that was much more dangerous so until they were trying to make a plan how to um, bring kids and wives out of the country. They stayed there for a week 
and then um, they managed to get um, a tickets to this bus that was transitioning people from Ukraine to Poland. And on the bus, it's much easier to manage kids because you have more space. They can run around and you have more space to entertain them. Um, on the bus, they spend almost three days uh, getting to the border, which is usually takes 45 minutes uh, without traffic on the good day. The support from Polish people were incredible. They were all standing as you cross the border, waiting with food, clothes, hot drinks, um, just to support people. It was really like, you know, kindness. Um, sorry, I still get emotional That's about fine. those things. Take a moment. Um, I just, you know, trying to kind of understand what they gone through. Um, what updates were you getting at the time? Not many because they didn't have much signal at that time. And obviously to charge their phones, it was hard. So uh, we would just receive a message once a day saying that we moved uh, by 500 meters, you know. Um, so the the conversation was very short. And uh, yeah, we were just guessing what's happening Um over there, but as soon as they crossed the borders, things have changed. We arranged uh, for um, them to be met by our friends who were so kind. Um, they um, connected us with their family uh, in Poland um, to host them for the time being while we were preparing their documents to come to England. Um, and the family in Poland looked after all of them so well. They felt really supported, safe. Um, they give them everything, like, you know, home, food, shelter. They made them feel welcome. Um, I'm beyond grateful to, to them all. Um, and then after about a month's uh, time, them being there, we managed to get the papers sorted, and then they all came to London. So they flew across? Yeah. And you met them at the airport? I did. What was that like? Oh, it was... It was great. Um, so first, <laughs> I met my sister and her tickets. And... Uh, she uh, she came out um, from the airport and um, kids ran to me straight away and they were wearing all the like uh, winter clothes because it was cold in Poland as well and winter boots and uh, these faces like you know happy and smiley um, because kids they didn't feel as much impact on um, what has been happening and what they've been going through. Um, and also, I think I took their attention with having um, two massive giant balloons nice. <laughs> that they were very happy to receive. But my sister came out looking. I saw relief in her eyes, but the rest was very sad to see how exhausted she was how scared she was and 
she had this like a huge bag where she packed all her life in and moved with kids away from the war. Um, yeah, it was really emotional moment, but I felt so relieved and happy that we managed to bring them here because this is where I can give them safety and security. So where did they go after they... Yeah, so they stayed with me for a day uh, and then they uh, stayed with my aunt who lives in uh, Surrey uh, for about a few months until they could move and find their own space where they live now. Um, yeah, it was quite hard for kids to adjust to... How old are these kids? So they were four and six at that time. And uh, David, uh, older one, he did uh, speak English because my sister, she is an English teacher back in Ukraine. And she spent a lot of time um, with her younger one to make sure that he speaks English. Um, with with older one, with the younger one, it was different story because two kids, it's very different to one kid. Uh, but Ariana, her youngest one, she is a very amazing and very, you know, stand for yourself girl. She decided that she can speak English without knowing the language. And she created her own language that she would speak to people, which was quite cute. Um, but now they both fluent in English and they now chose to speak English wow. between themselves um, other than Ukrainian is very interesting to see how quickly kids adjust yeah. and they like little sponges just soak the knowledge um and it just comes natural to them were they integrated into a school here in, in yes not long after they moved to england um they went to a nursery um where my sister also started to work at um, people were very kind and supportive um, and uh, offered them space in nurseries uh, for free, which was very kind of them. Uh, there they made a lot of friends and felt like they are back to normality uh, because I think more for David than Ariana, he felt like he left all his friends behind. He was going to like a preschool classes with his best friends that he would play at the playground with. And now he had nobody. Um, and he was a bit too shy to speak English, even though he knew the language. Um, so for him, it took a bit longer to adjust to it. Uh, whereas with Ariana, she was like, that's my place. I'm going to be at home here. <laughs> for her, it was more natural. Whereas for him, he was very very sad about losing his friends but also I think losing like not losing but not seeing his father it was very hard for him even though he wouldn't talk about it at home but then teachers at school would say that he talks about war a lot which was quite interesting um, but he wouldn't raise that topic back home so their father is your sister's partner yeah and where is he so he in Ukraine He's in Ukraine uh, for <sighs> since the war. Um, 
they managed to see each other once um, since then. Um, and we have hope that he would be able to join them at some point. Um, but at the moment, it is what it is. What's your niece and nephew's life like right now? Well, now they have a beautiful life. They go to school. They love it. Um, they go to parkour classes, football classes, and have a great uh, friendship groups. Um, for children, as I said, it was very easy to immerse themselves into English way of life. Um, for my sister as well, because she is well-traveled and she's been to the UK to visit me a few times. She loves it and she loves the language and the culture and the country. So for her, it also wasn't that difficult to immerse herself into the living experience in the UK. And I guess for her being a busy mom um, that also works full-time is quite different. You know, she doesn't have time to think about it too much or feel sorry for herself. She just appreciates what she has and she appreciates the safety of her kids. And that's something that she she's, she's fighting all along for. And this country offers that to her family and she's beyond grateful for it. You, you talked about your sister's journey and experience um, from the beginning of the war. Your mom is also out in Ukraine. What's her experience been? Her experience is very different to my sister um, and her kids um, because she doesn't speak the language and she's 63 and for her it's very hard to live a happy life here um, and then it brings a lot of responsibilities to me to make sure she's comfortable um, as well as that she's not healthy and she has a lot of undergoing conditions uh, which makes everything more complex um and that's 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 been quite hard for the last year and a bit to look after her and make sure she's well where is she she lives close by where i am in um barbican Oh, okay, so she's in London. Yeah. She is in London, yes. She moved before my sister because she was coming to visit me uh, for Christmas that year. And she had her visa already then. Um, and when war started, we just put her on the plane and she came to London straight away. Whereas with my sister, we had to, and her kids, we had to go through all the process of applying for visas and getting the documents for her and kids to be able to come here which took us a while um yeah but mom got here right at the beginning and um she didn't want to go she didn't want to leave um it was very hard to talk her into leaving everything behind all her life um, and coming to this country where she only had had has us um, so how is she finding life now after a year or so? Um, it is a bit easier because she kind of found her way around and she figured out how the public transport works and she can get from A to B. Um, but still, like, you know, um, the routes that she doesn't know, she wouldn't go. Or she, and as I said, she doesn't speak the language, even though she tries to learn. Uh, when you get to that age, it's not that easy especially for her having as i said a lot of 
undergoing health issues, um, it's not very easy. What has your experience been with the UK's, the, the UK people's response? It's been incredible. Um, again, going to similar applies to this with the sense of self-made people that I don't believe in as well as I helped my family to come here. No, I didn't. I did with help of a lot of others, which were always there for me, supporting me every day and night. Uh, a lot of my incredible friends um, and friends of friends who constantly were helping with a lot of things, um, getting them here, making them feel at home, making them feel comfortable. Um, it's it's beyond belief uh, how much help um be received from people that I do know but also from people that I never met in my life people were very very welcoming and um, they were always wanting to help in whatever way whether it's to stay with them whether it's to spend time with them whether it's to help them financially for the time being whether it's to just feel them welcome or feed them or whatever else like you know they were very 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 good I'm honestly cannot believe uh, how much kindness and love they have received uh, from people here yeah I was looking at stats earlier Uh, 6.2 million Ukrainians have been displaced as refugees globally of which most of them, the majority of them, are within Europe. 200,000 are in the UK. There's a million in Germany, uh, a similar amount in Poland. Um, but also I was surprised to learn that there's, a, there's a, a huge number, more than a million in Russia. And I the first thought was, why are there refugees in Russia? Uh, which I was going to pose to you, but I found the answer out. And some of them have been forcefully displaced against their will into a country that is at war with them. Correct. Russia is very good at propaganda and tricking people into things that people don't want to do. Um, similar thing happened in 2014 when, when they invaded east part of the Ukraine and a lot of um, cities on east part of the Ukraine, a lot of people were tricked into believe that if they moved to Russia... Um, where they offer them to move to in Siberia, they will have a good life with good income and good jobs. But I know personally people who been falling for it and now they cannot believe how badly they were treated. There were no jobs, there were nowhere to live. Everything was very... Um, well structured for them to believe in but when they arrived uh, they literally had nothing they 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 had nowhere to stay almost they the houses they houses that they placed them in where um the roof of the houses were leaking there were very limited amount of food there were no jobs and and they just signed up the documents to leave there for a certain number of years so they couldn't come back and that's what Russia did in 2014 with the full-scale invasion. They just tricking people into believing that they taking them to a safe territory where there is no bombing without 
people's consent to go there. They just transporting them to Russian territories, calling them refugees, putting them into camps, especially children who are under age of 18 years old. More than 20,000 people were, I would say, stolen from Ukraine because with knowledge of the parents that they were taken to Russian camps um, and kept there and trying to brainwash them with Russian propaganda. It's absurd. How? Why? I know it's hard to discuss really the politics, the politics of it all, but what has been the international reaction to, to all of this? Because it's clear that Russia are committing war crimes. And so from a, as being a Ukrainian, what do you really want to see happening from, from international governments and communities? Russia has committed multiple war crimes. Um, Russia committing um, genocide in Ukraine uh, since the invasion uh, last year. And one thing that we have been asking from day one to stop completely trading or do any kind of business with Russia. And sadly, many countries are still having business with Russia and this money pay for this war. One of the UK's responses was to introduce sanctions and they called it a rolling program of intensifying sanctions, which is very similar to the, the EU's, um, EU's reaction as well. It seemed that very early on, I think even before the invasion, when the, the military was, was being um, stationed on the borders, some sanctions were coming in, but it didn't seem like there were any tough cards that the government were playing. What does Russia hold, which we're, that the government is so afraid of? Well, Russia has its power in its gas and nuclear weapons. And those are two things that Russia was terrorizing the world with. Cut off the gas supply. Obviously, everyone now used to a luxury of having electricity, gas and everything else 24-7. And yes, a lot of it comes from Russia, but some countries has have proven that we can survive without them. It will be a bit more expensive, but at the same time, we are paying as a country with people's lives on daily basis while Russia invading Ukraine. So how much are you willing to pay? So that's a simple answer. Russia is a terrorist state and they are terrorizing the world with pressing the red button or cutting the gas supplies. And that's not okay. And it's not okay that world doesn't do anything about it. So one of the things the UK, as well as much of Europe, even the United States, has provided is, is aid and military support. That's in the in the form of lethal and non-lethal aid. It could be tanks, ammunition, guns, defense systems. Non-lethal aid includes stuff like armor, helmets, medical aid, emergency vehicles. Um, the UK has been involved in training UK troops to a NATO standard. Do you feel that Ukraine is getting the um, the defense that it deserves? I think Ukraine is getting a support, but 
I believe Ukraine deserves more support because every single country can do more in order to support Ukraine so we can stop this war once and for all. And if every country did more, this war can be over now. But because there are certain things that certain countries don't do because of the certain beliefs or business ideas that they have, they allow this war to go on. And Ukraine paying every single day with multiple lives for it. And we are just being a shield for the whole Europe from Russia, trying to protect and fight for our country, our territory, and our land, our homes, whilst everyone else is watching. And that's very sad. Uh, before we, we started recording, you told me about something I'd never heard of. It's the Budapest Memorandum. Um, tell me about that. So in 1991, when Ukraine became an independent country um, and Soviet Union fall apart, um, Russia declared that all the nuclear weapons all around Soviet Union countries belong to Russia, um, which is a nonsense because Ukraine had still has one of the biggest nuclear plant in Europe, in Zaporizhia, uh, and about Chernobyl, everyone knows. Um, and Russia wanted to transition all the nuclear weapons to Russian territory. And this is when um, Budapest Memorandum falls into place. Uh, everything has to be documented and agreed on. Uh, and Ukraine agreed on becoming a nuclear-free country, uh, signing the Budapest Agreement in uh, December of 1994, where three countries, including Russia, assigned the protection to Ukraine in case of any invasion. Those countries are Russia, United Kingdom and United States. And now we are having war on our land and Russia invaded Ukraine. So that's why we strongly stand by belief that country have to do more, that vouch for our protection. This is something you, as a country, had nuclear weapons and were encouraged to give them away to Russia, which is one of the nuclear powers that's allowed by law to have nuclear weapons. Um, but in doing so, you were given protection assurances. I, I read one piece, it says, in exchange for giving up its nuclear arsenal, Ukraine initially saw a legal binding guarantees from the US that it would intervene should Ukraine's sovereignty be breached. But when it became clear that the US was not willing to go for that, Ukraine agreed to somewhat weaker but nevertheless significant politically binding security assurances to respect its independence and sovereignty which guarantees its existing borders. Sounded like US weren't willing to give the full protection assurances that you needed at the time. You had to settle for something less, but still, albeit a binding security assurance. Now, there's a lot of talk about how uh, the NATO, uh, Ukraine is not part of NATO. Uh, a lot of, uh, and, and a, by being part of NATO, an attack on one NATO state is an attack on all. I think there's 30, 31 NATO states, which all have the protection and assurances that should any of them ever be attacked by any 
foreign entity like Russia, for instance, that all states will come together to defend that. And so Ukraine not being part of NATO do not have those security assurances. But what you highlighted to me was this other form of assurance which was signed in the 90s, which I I didn't know too much about. You've highlighted to me something which was happening, but it seemed like it was more looking looking at it now in hindsight that it was just some kind of way to get Ukraine to give up their nuclear arsenal. Yes, unfortunately that's that's how it looks now. We were working as a country to become a NATO country, uh, which we were very close to. And that's definitely something that triggered Putin to invade Ukraine because obviously he didn't want Ukraine to become a NATO country because he would lose all the power over the countries that he thought he had. Nevertheless, since the invasion of Ukraine, Poland is a NATO country and there were bombs um, falling on Polish ground already, but no one ever did anything about it. And they tried to wipe any any video reference or picture reference on social media or news about bombs flying around Polish territory. There were a lot of a lot of them that already fall on Polish territory, which is a not NATO country, but no one ever talked about it because because why? Because they would need to all stand up and defend the country. Why they don't? When um not really knowing too much about international politics, international history. Um, one thing I do know is that Russia is a big state. It's one of the biggest countries in the world. So when I, I saw that, you, uh, that Russia was launching an attack on Ukraine, I didn't think that there would be any hope for Ukraine. It just seemed like on paper in my mind, and probably for many people as well who didn't know too much, that Russia were going to be an insurmountable force. Um, And knowing what happened in recent history with the annexation of Crimea and how that just kind of just happened under the radar of like international news and just suddenly just happened and suddenly that they claimed that territory, it just seemed like, will this happen to the whole of Ukraine? But it didn't. And there was a fight back from the Ukrainian people, which surprised perhaps so many people with their audacity to take on such a force like Russia. And their resistance has been, I guess, a story, uh, I guess, a, a form of pride for you to see how Ukraine was not willing to go so easily and it's still standing in in many parts and it's pushed back Russia, surprising many in the international community. What is that? How has that made you feel? Proud to be Ukrainian. I always have been and always will be proud to be Ukrainian. One difference between Ukrainian and Russian people is for 32 years this year, Ukrainian people have lived as free people in free, sovereign and independent country. Whereas 
in Russia they lived under Putin's regime being slaves to Putin's regime and being told what to do and how to do it. And when you fight for your home, your freedom and your land, your courage and your fearlessness beyond everything else, the truth is on your side. You haven't done anything wrong. You're fighting for something that is yours. You're not fighting, you're protecting something that is yours. And that's what difference. And that's why Ukraine will win this war. We just don't know when yet, but we will because it's our country. It's our territory. It's our culture. It's our history. It doesn't matter for how many years Russia tried to destroy it. It will never happen because we are much stronger than whatever else the Russian people or soldiers are fighting for. Because they fight, they when you ask them what they're fighting for, they don't know what to answer. They just fighting for the idea that Putin put into their heads. They just invaded the country for the idea of a madman that he can rule the world. Like how crazy is this? Like how in modern world. When we are fighting for human rights, we can allow this to happen. On what basis, on what beliefs, country can invade other country just because they want to? Why? So, I am very proud of Ukraine and of their strengths. And that strength will take us to victory because we're fighting for our home and our country. And it's simple as that. And you yourself have done so much over here in the UK and in London to champion Ukrainian voices. And I want to move on to that part of your story because I think it's one of the big adventures that you've done recently has been to challenge yourself to make sure that stories are heard and and the story of Ukraine and, and the war is heard. Um, I'm releasing this episode on the week of Ukrainian Independence Day, which is on Thursday, the 24th of August. Last year was 31 years of Ukrainian independence. And you did something amazing to celebrate that. (laughs) Well, that was very um, unique. Once in a lifetime thing for me, probably. On the day when war started when Russia invaded Ukraine. I was at the rally at 10 Downing Street the whole day. In the evening, my friends um, from Midnight Runners, especially Catherine, Jessica and Emma, met me uh, for a drink because they didn't want me to be by myself. Um, And I was like, girls, I need to do something. I need to do something right now. Like, I'm just going to run like every day, all day until this war is over. <laughs> and they were like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Just just pause there for a second. Let's think through it. 
So I slept on the idea that I do want to do something on that night. Uh, my friend Jessica, she stayed with me overnight kindly because my friends are the best friends. They they really care for me and I'm so grateful for them. And then they would all check up on me every time. My friend Michelle, my friend Kat, my friend Emma. Um, they would always check on me how I am doing um, every day. How is my family getting on? Um, and then they were like, okay let's think about doing something in terms of running but let's plan it properly um and make sure it's it's not too much because you're going through so much right now and i was like okay that's actually true it was emotionally draining to understand that war war is happening um getting family out getting family to the safe space and place so yes, it was too much, but I didn't see it because I was like, yeah, I want to do something now. I want to do something straight away. So my incredible friends from Midnight Runners community helped me to organize um, Run for Freedom. Um, we did that um, about two months into the war and it was beautiful. We had a turnout from a lot of other running communities and I had my auntie to make a lot of Ukrainian flags that we run with, which was very kind of her. She did she did them overnight. It was incredible. She just sat next to her sewing machine and just like sewed 50 flags uh, for us to run in. And uh, we finished the run at a Ukrainian culture club in Holland Park. And Culture Club was used um, as a base for humanitarian help uh, or medical supplies that was donated to be sent to Ukraine. And this is where we would pack everything and send everything back to Ukraine. So when we entered the building, the guys saw a lot of things and it was like awakening experience for them to kind of really feel how partially it feels for Ukrainian people something that probably they didn't expect to experience. Uh, I didn't know that they're going to have so many things there when we arrived because I organized for us to end up there because they also have a Ukrainian kitchen there where you can try a lot of Ukrainian dishes that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So if you ever want to try Ukrainian food, I go to Holland Park Ukrainian Culture Club. Um, they will feed you well and you won't be disappointed. And then after that, uh, we met up um, at my boyfriend's place a few months after where we all sat down and started to plan 31 for 31. Uh, and the idea came with the name of the challenge being 31 years of independent Ukraine. Um, and that the point that I wanted to make and hence why I run for 31 days 31 kilometer a day yeah 31 kilometers is a long distance to run <laughs> long distance to run in one day it's a pretty epic thing to do in two days three days in a row you're a bit crazy to consider doing that 31 days in a row is an unbelievable amount of of running there's over 900 kilometers in total over the course of a month Yes. It was a huge challenge to take on. Indeed it was. And I was very scared. I didn't know how my body would react to it. I never done anything like that before. But I always know that I want to do it. Something like that. And opportunity presented itself, not just challenge myself physically, but 
do it for a great cause to raise awareness about ongoing war in Ukraine as well as to raise money for people in needs in Ukraine who have been affected by the war. You had a whole campaign. Every day you dedicated to a different town or city in Ukraine. Correct. And you told stories from what that that town was like maybe before the war and what's been happening during the war. Um, I've got them listed here and I've got all your your um, things that you wrote on your socials about every single town that you dedicated a day for. It would take us too long to go through all of them. I, I've read through them all. And the, the stories just really show the spread of the war because these are all just individual places, individual towns with their own people and and stories themselves. You've highlighted a few, which we're going to go through. Let's start at day one. You started doing laps of Battersea Park in London. You dedicated it to Kiev. Tell me about this, this place. Kiev. As you all now know, Kiev is a beautiful capital of Ukraine. And Kiev was bombed first by Russia on the 24th of February last year. And... That's why I dedicated my very first day to Kiev to acknowledge this strong and still standing city that will stand forever. I truly believe uh, that we will definitely defend our country and we will win this war. Kiev is a glorious city with a lot of architectural beauties around it, as well as great river going through it as well as beautiful churches uh, a lot of infrastructure a lot of um, business districts um, as well as great uh, places to visit us for dinner or theater or galleries it has so much to offer um, and it's just a, a heart of our Ukraine for the time being, and I believe forever. How did it feel finishing that first thirty-one k? It's a, it's a, as I, like I said, it's a, it's an epic distance yeah. itself. Yeah. Well, my body is a very weird body that takes a while to warm up, and with this challenge, it was the same. Um, my hardest days were day number three, day number seven, and day number nine. Why were that? On those days, I felt very bad physically and mentally I was destroyed more physically than mentally from I my body was adjusting to amount of running I was doing every day I also was working um as well um every day um so I was trying to combine both without help of my friends who helped me to put in place the campaign as well as post on social media, create social media posts, helping to research and write all the blogs about the cities, um, organize the people to turn up to the runs, to support me on each run, to bring water. Because as you can remember, on that August, it was a heat wave in London and we had a very hot month. Um, and that was amazing to see how many people turned up to runs on every like every day, regular basis, and just brought some food for me, water, drinks. 
So day one was great because I was still excited. My legs were still fresh and I felt great. It was just nice. A lot of people just uh, turned up for one lap or two laps or some of them did the whole thing with me. And um, it was just really empowering uh, the first day. The second day was fine. Not as fun as first day, but was just fine. And the third day I crashed. My body just... It's like, what are you doing? I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Are you joking? And it all comes to your mind. And my mind was so focused and strong at that time that I had no any other choice other than to do that run. For me, it was non-negotiable. You're just going to get it down, to get it done. Either, even if you have to crawl, you will do it. For me, it was just no questions about it uh, because a lot of people would say to me what if you get injured what if this and that and I was like I don't care I'm gonna get it done doesn't matter how but that's what I'm gonna do so yeah without any support from you know I didn't have a dedicated visa who would see me every day and fix my tired muscles I didn't have you know anyone you know looking after me every day I had the support of my friends and a running community which which was incredible and I cannot be grateful enough for it without them it would not be possible there's a big part of your challenge actually incorporating community um yeah. you also use this as a way to explore different areas of London but also Correct. link up with different running communities around London yeah so you can help spread the message of what you're doing as yeah. well but also in the in the um, environment which other people could relate to. Correct. That was the biggest goal of the challenge. I had two goals to first one, the most important one, to spread the word about Ukrainian um, suffer from Russian invasion. Um, and second is to raise money for uh, people who are in need back home in Ukraine. And we managed to raise 15,000 pounds, which was incredible and beyond grateful again. Um, as well as we managed to get to um, BBC News, which is amazing, as well as I managed to talk to hundreds and hundreds of people in different running communities um, across London. Amongst them are Best Athletics, Adidas Runners, Run Dusty, um, City Runners, um, all our incredible, beautiful communities, as well as as Sweat Society in Serbiton. Um, I reach out to all of them and they are incredible people and opened their arms to me straight away and they were like yes what can we do how can we help day six is another one you've highlighted for me to talk about Mariupol yes Mariupol was um was really devastating to watch um how how much pain they went through um and how how incredibly strong Ukrainian soldiers were. Most defenders who were in um, Mariupol, Azov, Stal, um, they were fighting since 2014 when Russia invaded in east part of Ukraine. And most of them were fighting for years against Russian invaders. And they were all standing strong until the last day. They were suffering through not having enough ammunition, not having enough food, not having um, water to drink, but they were standing strong with their belief in 
victory and their belief in being right and protecting what theirs. Um, and many of them were wounded um, and now some of them are captured by Russians. Um, their wives and families trying to get them back for a very long time. Uh, some of them, they have managed to exchange, um, but some of them are still kept by Russian. And those who were exchanged told horror stories, how they've been tortured and what they did to them. It's beyond belief what they've been through. On your post, you said um, Russia bombed the maternity hospital and then the building of the Neptune swimming pool, which was a place where pregnant women and mothers and little children were hiding from the bombing and shelling. Correct. We have numerous photos seeing kids that were killed by bombs, pregnant women who um, people trying to save and move to a safe location, all being wounded and all being um, in terrible state. Um, they killed many innocent young kids and there is this certain video that was on social media from very early on um, the invasion where doctor is trying to save 12 years old girl and she dies after was delivered to the hospital and doctor just loses and cries because he cannot stand this it's terrible um, and it's one example but there are many of them and many of some that we would never know. Day 10. Bucha? Bucha. Bucha, sorry. Bucha is a city close to Kiev, um, little town, uh, more likely, where, where Russian did terrible things to people. When um, Ukrainian army liberated the territory and came back, they found... They found bodies that were tortured. They found bodies of kids, women that that were endlessly raped. Um, the different organs that were cut out of the bodies and things that they did to kids just beyond belief. They found numerous dead bodies of kids, women that were raped many times by many people with their hands being tied behind them. Some had their breasts cut out. Many men had their genitalis cut out. Um, they just left them there like animals too. That's just three locations you've got over you've got about 29 i think here that you dedicated days to each with their own mm -hmm. individual story of something horrific which has happened as a result of of russia's war um you know i do want to do those stories justice but i think it's i think we've touched on so much of of, of the atrocities that's happened and i think it's it's horrible it is yeah it is, and every day reading those stories and every day something um, new was happening. And it's it's just destroying your soul um, bit by bit. And I think this is when 
running comes in for me personally that helps me to overcome um, those emotional waves of devastation and focus on, you know, being helpful, being there for people and do my part. You managed to get through your 31 days, remarkably running 31 kilometers a day, an absolutely incredible achievement. I could, can't, cannot even fathom um, what you had to go through. And just to give some context, some of the runs you were out for four or five hours in total, including the interactions you had with running communities, as, and you mentioned as well, combining that with your working day as well. I cannot imagine what that was like for that for that month of your life. It was very interesting experience. I do remember one day I literally was stretching and I just finished my run and I had my mum in my place and I had someone else, can't remember who else, but they were talking loudly about something and I literally fall asleep stretching on the floor in the middle of the room while they all had this like ongoing discussion about something. I was so tired. I had about an hour of sleep in in the pigeon pose <laughs> on my mat. It's quite a pose to be sleeping in. I know. But you are so experienced with... All your strength and conditioning. It's just a natural pose for you to be in, maybe. You spend was, so much time in your life. I was just exhausted physically and I just needed a little nap. And I think that's was that was that. Um, but yeah, no, it was really hard. It was hard, but at the same time, as I said, like mindset was set and there was not no other choice. It was just that. That's what I'm going to do. And as soon as you decide that for yourself and commit to it fully, then you wouldn't question it. You know, you just do what it takes and just go for it. And that's what I've done. But again, without all the support that I received from my friends, that would never happen. I had uh, so many people join me for most of my runs. I never was running by myself more than for, I don't know, five kilometers. So it's been... It's been really great to have that support. Without that support, it would have been very different. And on the last day, it was very powerful finish to the challenge. I had so many friends turning up um, and they created this beautiful finish line with blue and yellow um, straps across next to Millennium Bridge and Ukrainian flag and beautiful sunflowers. And yeah, it was just... Yeah, it was just so beautiful. What does it mean for you to see that those two colours of your flag? It means to me freedom. I see freedom. I see people who free and strong. And that's what I see, strength and freedom in those two colours. Finishing 31 for 31, what did you learn about yourself? Well, definitely I always uh, say this in my classes your body is much stronger than you think. I think I proved that to myself once again. That's very, very true. Um, and if you're doubting that, try to step outside your comfort zone and you will be surprised. I definitely learned that mentally and physically, I am much stronger than I thought of myself to be. Then I have learned that, again, I have this incredible community that you know willing to give their free time and energy 
to be there for me, whether I am happy or crying or just need someone to be there for me. They are there for me. And also I learned to see positive impact in very devastating situation like it is back in Ukraine. The positivity that all this support and love and kindness that people bring um, into the lives of people that have been affected by the war is priceless. Um, looking back at it, I am um, I'm very proud of the fact that it's been done, but I'm not very good at taking praise for things. So for me, it's like you're saying it's an incredible thing, but, you know, I think to myself, it's just that, like, I just did what I had to do and I could do. my. I played my little part in in helping my country. Um, so, I don't know. It is a big thing, but at the same time, is it? Because there are a lot of other people who doing crazy things as well and they all doing also for a lot of incredible reasons um so yes i am proud but i don't know how to express this i don't know as i said i i'm not very good at taking there's an actual really nice human element to that where you just <laughs> it can't it really just come and she's for different people at different times but you are doing something and we all support what you're doing and that's why so many people got behind you because they supported what you represented. And sometimes it takes some person to stand up and be a leader and take action. And it doesn't matter how big or small that action is. The fact that it's the action in the right direction, which is causing that positive change. And so many people don't take that action. So many people shy away from taking action. So many people doubt themselves whether they're capable of taking action yeah and it's not for everyone so when someone does stand up and say i want to challenge this cause if people support that cause they're like yes i challenge i i want to challenge that cause as well i just don't have the confidence but what i can do is i can run beside you and i can be part of it and i can help make you a bigger person uh, and make your voice louder well, that's definitely something that what I felt during the um, whole challenge. I felt like people really were there for me and that would carried me through. I'm glad I did what I did and I would do it all over again if needs to be done. I would say don't compare yourself to anyone else who does anything epic. The very fact that you decided to take action and do something that was far beyond what you felt could be physically possible from outside your own comfort zone was enough. And to put yourself out there for 31 days, running hours at a time, is yeah. incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's been, it's been great. It's been great. And Many people said to me after, not long after it was over, that they do miss it because we had this, you know, lovely meetups every day where we would run together 
and catch up and uh, we had little whatsapp groups where we coordinate uh, who who's going where and when and it was like really nice way to see people as well you know because being and living in london as you know life is very busy here and very hectic to make time for your friends but then people did make time for me and i appreciate that a lot so i think this is a a place where we can leave this story for now because the story still continues it still does the war continues and even at a place in the future when the war is over there will be the rebuilding of life in ukraine which no doubt will take many years yes but i can assure you that in the same way as Ukraine surprised the world with its strengths to defend their country from Russian invasion, Ukraine will surprise people around the world how quickly they will rebuild their country because it's their country and they want to live in it and they are there for doing whatever it takes. I thank you, Olga, for coming, sharing so much of your personal story and for reminding us that behind every headline that we read, that there is a human story behind that. Well, thank you, Tom, for having me on your podcast. And thank you for being open to talk about such hard topics like war in Ukraine and listening my family's personal experience through the getting out of Ukraine and coming back to the safe place in the UK. Thank you.